Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? Eric, and here today to talk about the music. It's Michael Kester. Yeah, we're talking. This is a this is a this is a, a much needed physical media double feature. Oh, it is, isn't it? Yeah, this is a uh, this is a this is. We're doing two movies. We're talking about a couple of record stores. We're talking about Empire Records, which is yet another coming of age movie that I have snuck onto the show. And we're going to pair that with um, John Cusack and High Fidelity. John Cusack, an actor that uh, is extremely famous, and yet I never watch do anything. Isn't that weird? Do anything? Do you feel the same way? Uh, I think it's called say anything. I'd never see him in anything, but he's very famous. Oh, you mean I see you his never... sister everywhere. <laughs> you mean you never watch him do anything? Yeah. Well, you said, I never watch him do anything and i thought you meant the movie say anything oh which is the john cusack movie no doesn't matter right none of this matters well but do anything is when you watch say anything on mute right that's <laughs> right. what that is right yeah it's when you watch it while fucking about on your phone that's yeah uh, that's true okay that's, that's very good um so yeah we're gonna talk about uh we're gonna talk about the 90s we're gonna talk about physical record stores we're gonna talk about um we're going to talk about the the physical cult of media because it's time, it's necessary, and we have been on the right and wrong sides of history on this in film. Uh, excuse me, history has been on the right and wrong side of my present opinion on this matter. I of think. your present opinion, okay. Well, I'm I'm not going to apologize for being an early digital evangelist. I didn't know the world no, would no, 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 no. turn into dystopia. How was I supposed to know that? No, I would rather you apologize for mocking me for my for my monolith of DVDs. That was like four days ago. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but before we get into How can it, I apologize for doing something in the future. That's not a good apology. Subsidize Eric's Netflix physical subscription at patreon.com forward slash double feature. Put your money where his mouth is. That's weird. That's so weird. <laughs> uh, keep the show alive. Keep the, keep the, the double features coming. Um, if this is your first time to double feature, our big thing, the thing we're good at, the thing that is evidenced today was evidenced last week and may even be evidenced next week. Our biggest skill is taking two movies, pairing them next to each other, and those two movies next to each other show you something about each movie that you wouldn't have seen watching it alone. That's what we're doing. And also, fundamentally, we're going to spoil these, uh, but it's not about really what goes on in these movies, which today I think will show. I don't know if we're going to talk a whole lot about this is not a review show. This is not a plot centric podcast. This is an idea centric podcast. And sometimes those ideas are close to the nucleus of the cinema we're covering. Whoa. And sometimes they're way out in the electron cloud. Jesus, man, bring it down. Empire Records is on the show today. Don't go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Don't go using three syllable words. What are you doing over here? Uh, I've got a couple more two syllable words, which is patreon.com 
forward slash double feature. All two syllable words. Wow. As long as you don't count the spaces. And a huge thank you to you for not mentioning that our show could go the way of Empire Records and poof out of existence because it just seems all too easy to look at a show about two record stores that you can't possibly imagine, you know, even existing today. But there we have it. It literally hits closer to home when you talk about where High Fidelity is filmed and whether or not those uh, businesses still exist. Ooh, I know, I know. (laughs) All right, but I want to start, if you think it's a good idea, I want to start with Empire Records. Well, and Empire Records wants to start with the younger John Cusack character going to Atlantic City. So my favorite thing about this double feature is that the character who goes and tries to save the record store by betting the safe on a craps table Mm. grows up to be John Cusack's character in High Fidelity. I'm convinced of this. It's the same guy. Really? Because I thought Joe, you know? Yeah. Joe ends the movie in a place that could be like, I don't know, two years before. Well, I guess there's a certain number of years, right? Because he says he hires the guys in High Fidelity. Yeah. But, you know, we see somebody go from managing a record store to owning their own store throughout the course of this film. Mm -hmm. So I I did kind of have the same idea in my mind, but it seems like all of these characters, you know, music is their life. We'll see that in the next film. Sure. And it makes it really easy to imagine them showing, you know, to imagine one being a prequel to the other. And that's interesting. So we, we've been talking on the journey about this sort of flash in the pan, um, infinite saga that is the new French extreme wave. You know, it's like 1100 movies in the course of like six or seven hours or whenever they were made. I don't remember exactly how it breaks down, but it's something like that. Uh. But it's really interesting to see these two movies and think about it in the same way, because in my lifetime, in our lifetime, we are of that generation. You know, it's that thing that, that, that we talk about all the time, but we were born without the internet and Basically, we were born before we were born before CDs. We were born at the advent of tapes. Yeah, and now and now it's out. It's 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 anno domine of tapes. Tapes are well, tapes are back for trendy reasons. But you know, it's it's this this Tower Records is the one that I always think of. Like Tower Records had its Icarus story in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. It went from nothing to this absolute monster fixture in the music community to out of business within like fucking 15 years of my life. Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, the moment Tower Records was just some place I could drop off flyers and then became like a place you couldn't get into because your favorite band was playing inside of it. Right. And the line was miles long. Right. And now people are like, Tower Records, what is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should we should logline the film. Mm-hmm. This is a, a movie that I believe was written based on experience and the writer's experience in Tower Records, working at Tower Records. Mm-hmm. So it is, uh, you know, about the culture of having that job. It's the, you know, it's the lives of nine record store employees on Rex Manning Day. <laughs> I mean, that's the important, mm-hmm. <laughs> important part of the movie. So I guess it's also, it is also baking in that later... Tower Records notion of like uh, the destination. Mm-hmm. I, what do you call these? These sort of like music events. You know, MTV Unplugged was obviously a, a big one of these. Mm-hmm. But the sort of like this band is famous and now they're going to play this famous style of set 
Mm-hmm. Now you have tiny desks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like a, it was sort of a destination performance in kind of a goofy way. You know, the same way that, that something like TRL was in the United States. Sure. The kind of like does a set at Tower Records because you could go there. Right. Oh, Tower Records, I've, I've stood right where my now favorite band is performing. Sure. And this movie also talks about a store that exists out in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing to be like, oh, they're going to play at the garden and I've stood there and I know, you know, like, okay, it's a, it's a fucking arena theater. Right. Or even smaller theaters. But if you lived in the suburbs, you don't have any of that. Right. But you do have a Tower Records. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sort of became like, there were, I remember, you know, growing up an hour outside of Chicago, that there were different Tower Records that were sort of like, this is the, they weren't sort of the, um, what's the name of a store when it's like the key store in the area? Flagship. Flagship, thank you. They weren't like necessarily, oh, this is a flagship Tower Records, but like the one in Schaumburg might get, right. you know, more sure more sure. bands coming to it than the one in Streamwood, Illinois or whatever the fuck. Right. Anyways, I feel like I'm taking us off the beaten path a little bit here. I mean, not really. I think that you're, that this whole movie, it's interesting because this movie is very much one of the, it's, it's a lot like Clerks in the way where it exists off the beaten path that takes place in a record store over the course of one day. When was the last time we watched a movie that takes place over the course of a day that isn't like showing us timestamps and being like very dramatic about it takes a day or whatever. Well, that's funny. Actually, you know, I made a joke about the Rex Manning day, but if we were going to be strict about the logline, because maybe it is important, it does end with the, and, and I shouldn't just say end, the whole movie is kind of the, we've got 24 hours to save the store, bring the right. community together. Sure. Fundraising concert kind of like template to it. Mm-hmm. The reason I think it might be important to specifically circle that is because what are they trying to save the store from? They're not trying to save it from, oh, physical media is dead. All of this is about to go away. They're trying to save it from becoming a the Starbucksification of the store. Right. A Sam Goody. Yeah, right. They're basically like <laughs> An FYE. Our, yeah. <laughs> our indie store yeah. is just doing so well and they'd like to just franchise it because this is a popular spot. Sure. And they think they could make even more money. It's not like, oh, the store, hey, we're barely scraping together every month. We just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. If we could just get this much money, we could keep it alive, which is the the story that, you know. Sure has become so much more familiar to us right? Uh, in the last couple of years. And I think that that's one of the things that's that's really more, I mean, it's it, they mention it in the movie, but I think that the lasting footprint that this movie has and, and really the, the element of the time capsule that could otherwise stand to be lost. So you and I, you know, we're uniquely poised to have this conversation today because one movie takes place in a record store in the suburbs with a bunch of punk kids and the other one takes place in a record store in Chicago with a bunch of punk adults. Insufferable? But I think one of the things... Insufferable adults? Punk yeah, adults? Really. Oh, punk adults. Okay. That's better. That's better. It depends on which side of the which side yeah. of the counter you're standing on, sure, my man. Thank you. Um, 
So, um, but I think, I think, you know, one of the things that I never hear conversations about anymore, and I think it's because of, you know, the screen generation and, and, and TikTok and all of this stuff, not as a Luddite, but as a thing, you know, people have better ways to connect than we did growing up. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know we talk about this whenever we can, but it's important. Malls existed in the suburbs. These, these, these things existed, these places existed that were, so if you didn't love being at home and let's face it, if you're a teenager, you just can't, you're not allowed mm. to love being at home. You need to be able to go somewhere else where other people are like you and you're not at home. But here's the thing about being a teenager in the suburbs. You can't just go to public places that adults are allowed to go to because people will shoo you away because they think you're like, I don't know, drinking illegally or you're playing on a playground meant for people slightly younger than you or people slightly older than you who have slightly younger people with, you know what I mean? Or you're in people's backyard, man. Yeah. That's what I remember. You're just like stu- you, you couldn't, yeah. if you went to a playground, you're in seven other adults' backyards who, yeah. you know, whose kids go to your school. So basically what ends up happening is these manufactured cultural hubs where a couple people you know or you know through other people get a job at a Gloria Jeans, a comic store, a record store, uh, Zoomies, uh, you know, these places that have this like built-in alt infrastructure and also Gloria Jeans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and then you go and you just you just veg around and you know pool your $8 and buy one thing a week with your three other friends so that you're not like fully loitering. Right. Um, or you hang out at the Hot Topic till they give you a job. Exactly. Well, that's that's what this movie is, right? So you have this record store. Everybody who's working at this record store, you, you see this with, um, I can't think of the character's name, but the guy from the beginning of the movie who comes in, even though he's like in deep trouble or whatever. Uh-huh. And he just like hangs out on the couch. Mm-hmm. He could go home. So, so this is, this is the thing that I think is off forgotten when we hit our age is that there are whole ass groups of people who like, you know, you punch the clock. We always, you, you, when you're this, when you're at this level, you always, you always, you know, disdain the nine to five lifestyle. And I think what you're really hating is the fact that you're devoting at minimum eight hours of your day to something you don't want to do. So Empire Records, the place is a place where people want to be instead of home. They're not washing the clock, waiting for the time to punch Mm -hmm. it. That's what this movie has different than, than a movie like Clerks, right? Clerks is about, I didn't even have to come in today. I wasn't even supposed to be here today. This is a movie about a group of people that the movie shows, if they weren't here, they might be bringing a gun other places. Well, you also have people like, uh, yeah, I mean, the shoplifters won, but I think about the guy, well, I was going to call him Walt because that's what his shirt says. But then I think about the kid shoplifting whose name yeah. we never fucking get through the whole movie, <laughs> who they call by a fake name and then give him a fake name right. name tag, which is so funny. But the guy in the Walt shirt who I can't figure out if he works at a record store or a pizza place, mm-hmm. you know, it just sort of seems like, why is he here? Yeah. I guess he works here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it is a, it's a hangout. And it's actually, it's very in vogue today in the middle of 
the work revolution we're having in the United States mm-hmm. to kind of pick on the, you know, this thing that doesn't fool anybody anymore, which is the, oh, don't think of us as a job, think of us as your family, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that that came from a kernel of truth. You know, that that phrase was, sure. I don't know if it was created here, but you do watch this movie with an unquestioning spirit of, oh yeah, well, this is their real family. Mm-hmm. This is the real place that they live. You know, this is their chosen uh, their chosen troop. Right. I mean, you have that, you, you see that most vividly in, what's the character's name? Deb, who shaves her head? Yeah. So this is a character who comes into work and shaves her head at work and, and everybody bands together to give her this living funeral sort of situation. But this is a scenario where she has, misery has happened outside of Empire Records, right? Mm-hmm. There's like a sanctity within these four walls of, you know, you can come in here and shave your head and sure people will probably make fun of you because that's what kids do. But ultimately there's this like support structure that yeah. she clearly does not have at home. She's clearly having struggles outside of Empire Records that only Empire Records can solve. But I also think that that the movie goes through a very important thing in Rex Manning being kind of a shitty dude mm. because it sort of naturalizes what is important about Empire Records. It's not this like, it's not this place where people are going to try and get close. They're not trying to touch the stars, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, they are, and then that fails. There's like this spectacular crash and burn. Right. And, and it sort of like devalues what you're talking about, which is that Tower Records thing of like, I'm standing on the place where Bright Eyes played an acoustic set. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Can you even imagine? <laughs> yeah. I like the parts of this movie. Obviously, there's so much 90s in this movie, there's so much oh, yeah. fashion. The Rex Manning day. Was, Ethan Embry uh, is Ethan Randall in this movie. That's how 90s it is. Yeah, well, the careers also that this yeah. spurned is another, you know, uh, Liv Tyler in this movie and Renee Zellweger mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. even Brandon Sexton and Rory, what's Rory's last name? Uh, Scanner Darkly, Rory Cochran, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Scanner Darkly. Mm-hmm. Actually, while we're, uh, allow me to complain about this while we're on the note of cast. Please. But the thing that's always killed me about this movie is on the cover, you imagine this cover with everybody on it. Yeah. And on the poster, there's also uh, Liv Tyler is holding everybody back. You know, there's that look. And in the little lower right-hand corner, there's that fucking dog. Yeah. That never appears in the movie. And that drives me, <laughs> I don't know why, Michael, but it drives me crazy. He's got headphones on. Yeah. Plugged into a boombox. Already I'm mad. Headphones plugged in. So the dog's wearing headphones because he doesn't want to be rude. He's got a boombox. He listens to it, you know, when no one's around. Sure. But sure. hey, there's there's eight people on this cover. You know, he not all of them want to listen to dog music. Mm-hmm. So he's got the headphones plugged in. Mm-hmm. Why is he here? You know, this is from uh, this is from an era where there was where ideas like I don't know, man, put a dog on the cover, more people see it. You know, sure. our market research shows if you put a dog on the cover, people will fucking check it out. Well, it, it's the it's the paycheck era of exploitation, right? It's where exploitation is is done for ROI. Yeah. Like real ROI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a it's a kind of teen movie genre. Mm-hmm. It's a movie that was, you know, infamously cut up like nobody's business in 
post-production. Mm-hmm. And that's it's one of the relics of the 90s, just as much as the fashion in here is or the... Sure. Like, I like a lot of that that lives on, the, you know, the Sinead O'Connor. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think about her when I think stuff of the 90s but i do remember that moment growing up and it was Mm -hmm. it was a big fuck you move to shave your head and um you know i knew women in my life who were shaving their heads that was just kind of going on at the moment you know that's that's sort of the flannel and the grunge and rex manning day is on the day of kurt cobain's death Mm -hmm. and some of that 90s culture is coming back now and people think about it now, but also a lot of it was lost. A lot of it, Mm -hmm. you know, this movie felt like uncovering a lot of things about the 90s that we don't remember back or maybe don't even like about the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know if it was a result of the edits to the movie or not, but there's also a read of this film that that sort of feels like it was made by like Dare to Keep Kids Off Drugs or something. Oh yeah, for sure. Like they mm-hmm. they straight up mention the speed in the movie and make a big deal of like a again like a dare like intervention. If you don't have dare where you are, or you didn't. It's just like a fucking government hokey anti drug. This is your brain on drugs kind of thing. Right. But there's no kids drinking. There's nobody's doing pot in the movie, which is fucking right. crazy. Mm-hmm. Like there's the weird pot brownie scene, but it doesn't even like call it out specifically. Right. There's even that sort of weird line about how, oh, I cooked it myself. You know what that means? Sugar and the guar scene. And so like it's sort of in there, but it feels very very skirted around that. Yeah, it's very much like Empire Records is my anti-drug. Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> you know, the morals of the story, the sort of John Hughes stuff, when that when that starts coming up, like these ideas, like you too could go to art school. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just sort of funny, funny ideas. But it came out during a time when when the soundtrack was bigger than the movie, when we were doing those kind of like music soundtrack films. And also, I feel like this has gotten lost over time. I mean, maybe this is like eye-rolling to even explain, but we had this thing called the MPAA. Everybody lived in fear of it. You made all your money theatrically with movies. And so everybody who was trying to sell to the most people possible, you know, at studios was telling the artists to cut all this stuff out of their movie or cutting it for them out of the movie. So you constantly had these, you know, PG-13 struggles where they just sort of trim all sorts of things out of the movie and not having an artist hand themselves so many times or just being like, you know, some editor who works at the studio being assigned a bunch of edit notes from an executive somewhere having to make these cuts sometimes literally locking the directors out of the editing room and, and you know, having no say in it. You'd often get movies that didn't make sense or a lot of the, the kind of soul was edited out of them. Very strange. And I know this movie, I mean, look, I wasn't fucking there. I don't know what the hell the cuts were. Right. But I do know it was very infamously chopped up after it was shot. To the point where, um, who the fuck is it that's in the credits of this movie? Tobey Maguire. Oh, who's in the credits of this movie, who is not in the movie anywhere, who plays like, I think his I name was that. Andrew or something. That. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I caught it this time. I don't think he ever actually 
showed up to film any scenes, if I remember correctly. But I do know some people were cut out of the movie. So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's Tobey Maguire scenes floating around somewhere. Not information you will be able to divine here on Double Feature. Um, speaking of gratuitous voiceover, we do have high fidelity today also. Um. <laughs> it's, it's not voiceover if it breaks direct to camera. Is I it? was actually going to say that. There's, it, it's like almost like that's what they needed in Blade Runner was they needed to film Harrison Ford instead <laughs> of just record his audio. Could you imagine? Oh my God. Could you? That's a sketch right there. No one fucking take that. Next time we need a Kickstarter idea. That's the fucking thing right there. Oh my God. Michael Kester is Harrison Ford when he's called back in to do the the super special final, final cut of the movie. Yeah. He's like 85 now. Yeah. And they're like, oh, we got to put it out again. You know, the, the last seven cuts of Blade Runner, they weren't, you know, it didn't work out. We had an idea, but we had to wait for age regression to catch up <laughs> right, with, right, uh, right. with the idea. So it's just Harrison Ford with a bunch of fucking Skittles pasted to his face on a green screen mm-hmm. doing robo acting. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> All right, you want to try a log line for high fidelity here? Oh my god, uh, it's difficult. Um, do you have do you have the character's name off the top of your head? There's uh, too many boring Midwestern names in this double feature. Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon. Rob Gordon. Yes. Yeah. See, perfect. <laughs> um, so Rob Gordon uh, works at a record store. Uh, owns a record store. Owns a record. Not store. a label. Yes. Owns a record store. Yes. Rob Gordon owns a record store with a couple of his employees and is is uh, going through a breakup with a woman that he loves and he uh, he goes through all of his exes and future exes in a journey to understand what love really is and you know the name is actually He's got great. a little kill bill list there yeah yeah he's doing his own listicle the, yeah i mean this movie invented listicles literally yeah i mean it's Amazing, literally right? a movie yeah it's crazy you can tell too because the movie thinks these are all cool mm-hmm. and they don't know that they're going to be the first step in destroying society right <laughs> so yeah that's fun yeah, I mean that that's essentially the plot. It's it's a very it's a very introspective movie despite what you would see. And it's also it's a movie that always surprised. I've seen this movie probably three or four times, but always with large gaps in between. Mm-hmm. And every time I see this movie, I'm surprised he doesn't end up with Lisa Bonet. Every time. Yeah. The yeah, movie yeah. is sort of like archetypically built like he's going to find out that he was actually like over this woman and he was giving her more than she was giving him and he ends up with the hotter more talented character but instead the movie is actually an adult movie that deals with actual like adult scenarios and even though you know she is maybe hotter and more talented that's just not a realistic path for him to take and instead he starts a record label he starts a record label about it well, I think there's a really great character reason that I think him not ending up with Lisa's character is important in in sort of the modern perspective of this movie. But I don't want to get out of the log line without addressing just for a moment, indulge us here, the city of Chicago, Illinois. Oh, yeah. 
in I mean, Chicago. It, you has indulge to be us. To the- <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about how it's one of the most like indulgently Chicago movies. Well, look, I remember we always had like four movies. You know, we had like The Dark Knight, Untouchables, High Fidelity, and if you squint yeah. and cover your ears during The Matrix, that was like sort of yeah. You know, you look look at the Matrix just through your peripheral vision or something. Yeah. You could kind of get that. But this is the one that shows the music box marquee. Yes, and you get your little. Uh, <laughs> although I don't remember the music box interior enough to know if that was really shot in there, but it wouldn't surprise me given how many I'm things look so It would so be so authentic. much easier. Yeah, yeah, and and also it's Reckless Records where he sees her play the Reckless Records in Wicker Park. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, very. That's cool. what that is. Yeah, yeah, and I think he's in Green Mill. Yep. You know when he's having a drink yep. there. Mm-hmm. Um, this was infamously right outside where we used to record the show mm-hmm. is probably right. the closest business right uh to the show before i think they definitely uh, what do they like bulldoze it to put a walmart in there or something is that yeah i think so yeah he was just he was just a gunshot away from from where we lived oh my god <laughs> i believe it or not so i haven't seen high fidelity in maybe 10 years and i forgot that it was in chicago yeah and I don't think it clicked with me until he's waiting for a train on the like wooden L tracks <laughs> where I'm like, who has a wooden, man, I haven't seen a wooden train station since I grew up. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> it's just like, it never occurred to me when we were living there that putting like your train on a bunch of planks yeah. was in any way weird, that you would just like wait on the side of a pirate ship to catch the yeah. fucking red line. <laughs> like. Like, oh yeah, that's just normal. That's how trains work. Yeah. But yeah, the music box, the glorious music box that we've talked about so many times shows up in the film. And uh, I don't know, you know, I, it's, I won't comment too much on the other Chicagoisms of the film because I do think as soon as I know that, my brain starts clicking all of this like, oh, I knew characters like this in Chicago. That's an apartment you'd only find in Chicago. You know, like all of this stuff just seems mm-hmm. so specifically of the city. And a lot of that is probably me like retrofitting stuff in the movie and just going, sure. oh yeah, that's so Chicago. That's so Chicago. That's so Chicago. It is and it isn't. The other thing that's really interesting about it, and it kind of goes back to the conversation we were having about our generational, when we grew up in the context of this, Mm -hmm. is this movie, it's kind of like filmed around the same time that like we were living there, like within a few years. Yeah, because this is 2000, right? So we're out of the 90s period now. Right. Yeah. And so, so Empire Records definitely has this sort of like nostalgic soft focus haze for me because like 19, was it 1995 or seven or something? Sure. When I'm like a little bit too young to be working at a record store. But High Fidelity takes place in the Chicago I lived in, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is actually super depressing because I'm stuck in the time capsule with the movie. <laughs> Oh no. You know what I mean? (laughs) So like you and I watch High Fidelity and we go, ah, yes, Chicago. But if me, you and High Fidelity all went back to Chicago, we couldn't find any of the same things. I knew what you meant the second you said that. I was like, (laughs) oh God, you're right. You're right. I'm just thinking about all this stuff that isn't there. That's that's like sort of this other like depressing death of physicality outside of the media. It's like the literal death of the physicality of the setting. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think there's a lot that's changed between the you know just the 20 years between when this movie came out and now and rob gordon himself 
Cusack's character is really the biggest thing I wanted to talk about because I think there is, people hate this character. And you can see a lot of reasons why that is. He's, as I, as you pointed out on the last movie, depending on whether or not you work at the fucking store, he might be a totally insufferable guy. Yeah, for sure. Like you and I think each other is like, we like each other, but like everybody else listening is just irritated for 49 minutes a week. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Only hate listeners. I don't know. Now, man, the Patreons are what keep me going on that. I'm like, wait, people aren't sure. listening. Yeah. Oh, no, depends on which side of the, which side of the paywall you're on <laughs> right. for double feature. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, other people get to hide behind a, a wall of mattress ads, so they don't have to worry That's about true. this so much. It's better soundproofing, though. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So we have this guy, he's looking up, you know, the plot is basically his current relationship is failing and he's going to look through his last, his top five failures. Mm -hmm. So the whole plot is that he's going to ring up all his exes and make them hang out with him. Right. And, you know, like ask them pointed, like tough, you know, Diane Sawyer interview questions. Mm -hmm. And um, was Diane Sawyer era... Uh, accurate. I was trying to get a two thousand. I think, I think Barbara Walters is probably like I your pocket. Know, whatever. Okay, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Point is, he's going to go grill his ex girlfriends about what the fuck happened. And I think this is falling into something I'm seeing a lot. You know, very recently, and I don't know how long this trend will play out, but there is this idea of portrayal as endorsement. You know, the fact that if a movie shows a character, it must be saying this character is good and the best way to live. And hey, audience, you should do this like this guy that I'm showing you, you know, and we've we've seen the Wolf of Wall Street is the one that I always think about in my head, you know, that people say, um, especially young men are watching the Wolf of Mm -hmm. Wall Street and not getting it and want to like grow up Mm -hmm. and idolize this character. Right. Of course, I think about Taxi Driver, you know. Yeah. Um, these I always m- think about Rick from Rick and Morty. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think, you know, this is one of the things that movies do is you put a character front and center in a movie. And there is some risk. It's also specifically it just, one of the things that Scorsese does. Let's be, let's be clear. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I'm name checking a lot of Scorsese here. Right. I mean, you want it, You can say Joker too if you want. Yeah, sure. Joker's another one for sure. There's, you know, it's like, what do people identify with? They identify with wanting to watch the world burn, not the delicate portrait of a, mm-hmm. you know, disturbed person in a world they don't, you know, like, okay. Right. Sure. So I think when you watch High Fidelity, you know, it's an easy mistake to make to watch it and go, they're saying this guy is badass, he's the ideal, he's the cool music guy, and you should follow everything he does and live your life according to his. And I hear so many people complain about this movie because they think, hey, this guy's actually kind of a fuck. Hey, this guy, you know, he doesn't have it right the way he treats the people he's with is repulsive, Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And I, I think it's kind of funny, you know, trying to figure out why people don't, 
like where is the disconnect? You know what I mean? Yeah. Where is that sort of like I don't get what Wolf of Wall Street is about, or I don't understand that there? I wouldn't even say that there's an ironic layer because I think it's literally a portrait of this guy who has all of these problems that are his own fault, and he's trying to get over his you know deep character flaws. Right. Is the plot of the yeah, movie right? I think the difference is that this guy's not like walking over the corpses of people, which makes it very black and white that he's a bad guy that's appealing, right? Right. To go back to some the the reason that I the reason that I like to name check Rick from Rick and Morty over all the other movies is one I can I don't have to worry about spoiling a movie, but two like. That character, the character, if you're not familiar with uh, the animated show Rick and Morty, uh, Rick is this like is written into the show as a really shitty grandfather. Mm -hmm. It's like part of the whole thing. And yet, like a lot of young men idolize him because he's he, he fucking tells it like it is, and he's you know all that bullshit. Right. right. All the shit that got us into trouble fucking five years ago, <laughs> six years right. ago. But. Uh, the thing about the thing about uh, Rob Gordon's character is that he's not walking over the corpses of his enemies uh, to get where he wants to go. He's walking over the corpses of his exes or his relationships anyway. But the movie, he's never painted. There's never like this, this like the movie only shows him wrong in sympathetic ways, yeah. right? It doesn't, you well, have to devise that he's, he's not. Yeah. Yeah, gleeful. you have to devise that uh, when he's having these dinners with his exes, um, that he's like doing the wrong thing. That has to be devised by the audience. The only time you ever see him wrong is when like he goes, "Oh shit, I guess Jack Black's band doesn't suck." <laughs> right? Yeah, that's like one of the times where like he's categorically mistaken, but. The movie doesn't. It, so you like, think it's because the he, audience has to do a little work? Well, yeah. I mean, if he like, if he like went to dinner with his ex and she yelled at him, and then he just like fucking whacked her, and she like, if he smacked her across the face, the point would be made. But that's not who this character is. There's there's a little bit more humanism to this person, and I think yeah, I think that I think that he's too familiar. Right? You don't know Leonardo DiCaprio's character in The Wolf of Wall Street. You can't name anybody in your life, who's that guy? Nobody can name the Travis Bickle in their life. Sure. But I can tell you like eight people, eight other Rob Gordons that I've encountered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, that's totally. the problem because because you, t you think about that person and you think about how that person doesn't realize they're kind of a fuck. And they were probably your boss when you worked at Empire Records. I think there's a lot that complicates it. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that. I was thinking, you know, even simpler, like he's talking direct to audience. Maybe we're forming sure. a bond with him in a different way. That's true, actually. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There, the audience has to do some work to uh, to get there. But the film the audience requires its own conviction. Yes. You have to have something. <laughs> yeah. You have to bring something to this movie. Right. The movie's not going to tell you. You have to be like, you have to be able to form an opinion on this guy. Well, and not to stir up a bunch of fucking controversy or anything, but the people I know who complain the most about it are people who probably have a little too much Robin themselves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Who may fear <laughs> totally. in, their, in their darkest sure. moments that they are like the insufferable fuck who's a fan of something. Mm -hmm. And um, I, and I mean, actually, just in the the point of like being 
you know, the the fans who talk down to less informed fans. He's not even the worst in the movie. Of the three guys in the Mm-mm. store, he's the only one who seems to be sticking up for the employee or for the uh, the customers. Mm-hmm. So he's not even, you know, he's not even the worst in in that regard. But but I think the film is so aware of these flaws because it's centering one the plot around it. But there's also there's all of these like subtle almost kind of digs at him that uh, like okay so you you go back and you're watching the flashbacks of like he's explaining oh this relationship went this way and it shows him with the girl and he always looks different and you could look at it and go oh that's kind of a gag about how they were you know 22 in this particular flashback and look at the fashion and stuff at the time but also the way he looks sort of mimics the girl he's with mm-hmm. and when you go back and meet these women again they seem to kind of have been on the same path whereas his style has completely changed so he's just sort of like sapping every one of his significant others like personalities while he's obsessed with that particular mm-hmm. thing at the time sure which i think is really fucking funny but also this is the reason that i think he doesn't wind up with lisa's character because you know he's really getting the worst out of life because he's his own worst enemy he has this interest in music we talk about uh, in the movie that he can't even build a top five list of his ultimate dream jobs if, you know, time and money and the, you know, laws of physics and what the fuck ever were no uh, obstacle, which is so funny that his number five is only like, a, I'd accept this if I <laughs> could architect job. But, you know, he, he talks about music. They talk about what they'd want. He'd love to live with a musician. He'd love to have a long, sustainable life with his partner as a musician. And then he meets Lisa, they hook up, they seem to have a pretty good time, even though he's like putting up a front of, as he says, you know, like constructing a character of a better person or what the fuck ever. But basically he goes there and he pretends to be somebody who's a little more on the level and a little less of an asshole, gets through the whole encounter. It seems to go great. And then he blows it off and like pivots, you know, 180 degrees, walks the other direction and is immediately back to like, right, so is she fucking this guy? She must have fucked this guy. Like I can't, like right back into stuff with his ex. Mm -hmm. Totally misses what, you know, 10 years later he might look back on and go, oh fuck, what was I doing that night? Like why didn't I ever call her again? Why did I throw away? I couldn't even see what's in front of me. That's the problem with quantifying everything into a list of five is that sometimes six is more important. <laughs> <laughs> wow, if that isn't the if that isn't the fucking um, bell to hang on it. The button, the bow, if you will. I did want to just talk briefly about the Jack Black thing because I thought, you know, I figured this is something you really love about the movie too. You're always telling me you like when movies do this. But there's like so you got to remember 2000 where this is in in the life of Jack Black and the public knowing who he is. Mm-hmm. So people haven't really seen him yet, right? Right. So Jack Black is just the comic relief nerd who works at this record store. He's the kind of a little too sweaty, a little too overweight, a little too funny, very charismatic performer. But I think he's there to kind of like fill out the type that sometimes these movies have. So the audience, now you and I watching High Fidelity know that later 
Jack Black has a fucking band that's blown up. He does right. a song with gorillas. Right. He's like on all these people's records. Yeah. But nobody knows that yet. So people are watching High Fidelity for the first time, not knowing that Jack Black, oh, of course Jack Black's going to fucking crush it. Now you look at this movie and you're like, oh, they had to cast Jack Black because I know the scene that's coming up where he shows up at the record store right. and he can like <laughs> right. nail this like kind of like low key difficult performance and you arrive at that scene and I have to remember that like, oh, the audience is being blown away because they don't know who the fuck this guy is and that he can do this. And it's only later that he'll sort of become known for doing things exactly like this. I don't know. It almost struck me like the kind of scene you would have to know him and write the sure write the scene for him rather than it actually being one of those sort of trope characters. Well, it feels genuine. It feels like he was almost like, you know, I, I actually have a band and the filmmakers were like, uh-huh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe then, he showed up yeah. and they didn't even know it was yeah. going to go that way. And they're like, fuck, end the movie now. What, what else are you going to do after this? Yeah. <laughs> so funny. So funny. All right. We have a website. Can I give a different website? You know, the Patreon, whatever. You can give it every website you want. Yeah. Towerrecords.com. Yeah. yeah, I know. Well, you and I were um you and I were checking this out earlier this year. It's musicmap.info. And uh, I'll let people explore this for themselves. Don't just look up music map because there's like music hyphen map and all these other websites. But musicmap.info, if you wanna if you were just feeling the music in this episode and thinking about your own top five lists and wanting to work through kind of like, I don't know what you would call this music genealogy or music DNA or what the fuck ever. But this is a way of charting and exploring music as if it was, as if it was a map of the planet and figuring out what bands came from what influences and how different genres bled into each other over time. It's a very cool thing and we don't ever get to talk about you know, music in that way. So I thought I'd at least wedge it on here so people could experience this this awesome uh, rabbit hole that I, well, really that we both uh, dove down earlier in the year. I want to thank your top five executive producers. Charles Crawford, Ben Ecker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon. There's only four because there is still a place in my heart for a fifth. You can join up on patreon.com forward slash double feature. And thanks to these executive producers, we have a show next time. Next time, something spooky this way comes. Uh, we're getting back to the horror, but we're we're kind of taking this weird deep dive. You 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 pick these two movies um, that I'm kind of excited to examine because <laughs> they feel sort of like ultra familiar and literally or metaphorically super foreign. Uh, so we are doing. All the colors of the dark and Messiah of Evil. I mean, it is a dark sound. It's an evil yeah, sounding yeah, it's show. Very, very sinister, scary titles. Yes, very scary titles. Very up insidious. our alley. Ed. I thought this would be a good one to get into something a little weirder for people who've seen. Feel like they've seen uh, a lot of this stuff and kind of have a, a little bit of a stranger conversation on it. I think that that's a uh, that's a good place to go. So uh, we'll see you next time. Watch more fucking film. Bye.